Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Jack Temption was inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame in 2019. He is recognized as a founder of the 1970s Southern California sound. Growing up as a hippie in San Diego, California, he gravitated to the folk coffee houses where the songwriting bug bit him bad. He wrote Peaceful, Easy Feeling and Already Gone, which were claimed by Glenn Fry and were two of the first breakthrough singles for the Eagles and were on their best-selling Greatest Hits album. He's had a successful solo career and has released 12 solo albums. His 27 chart-topping hit songs have been recorded by artists like George Jones, Emmylou Harris, Tom Waits, Glenn Campbell, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Tanya Tucker, and many others. Jack has a well-deserved spot in the Hall of Fame. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am so excited today to have one of my musical heroes on the show, Hall of Fame songwriter, Jack Temption. Jack, welcome to Backstory Song. Thank you, Doug. I'm happy to be here. Jack, you started your career a long time ago in San Diego. I'd like to explore how you got into songwriting. Like, When and why did you pick up a harmonica or a guitar or whatever, or pad a paper and a pen. And how did that start? Well, perhaps I was just born with it because I used to walk down the street when I was a kid whistling and I would whistle every song I could think of. After a couple of years, I rode my bike up to Ozzy's Music on El Cajon Boulevard and I had saved up money and I bought myself a harmonica. And then I would walk down the street just sounding out every song I could think of on my harmonica. And so that didn't really come from anywhere. That was just me. Then in high school, I heard a Bob Dylan record, and I loved it. All the other kids said, oh, he sounds funny and can't sing, but I was entranced by that. And then there was the folk music clubs that served apple cider. I would go around to those places, even though I was too young, really, but I wasn't a player. I didn't start playing any music till I was around 18. At that point, most of the other musicians had already been in bands and knew how to play and everything. So it was 18 when you picked up the guitar or you had a harmonica and you just would fool around with the harmonica up till then, but hadn't written a song. When and why did you write your first song? 
Well, I had a friend when I was 18. Joe and I would smoke some pot and go sit on the beach and watch the sun go down. And Joe was an amazing guy, and he would make up songs like about the city and the burning clouds. And he had a guitar. He would play a D chord and then move it up the neck and move it up the neck a little more and back down. And he would just play and make up a song for half an hour. They were still some of the greatest songs. We used to do this all the time. And then at one point I said, Joe, these are incredible songs. Maybe we ought to you know, write them down or, or something. He looked at me and said, no, man, that would ruin it. <laughs> so so uh, I still think of him as the great artist, you know, the pure artist, you know. He did it for the live performance only. Huh? Yeah, you just like, <laughs> you don't do it to save it, man. You just do it, you know. So, and then I was hanging around the folk clubs and... Name some of the clubs. This is San Diego, right? You haven't made your way up to LA and the whole... Oh, yeah, it's just San Diego. And the first clubs were the land of Odin. And it changed its name. It was Occam's Razor, and it was out in La Mesa. Uh, later on, there was the Candy Company, and there was a club in Escondido called In the Alley. I was hanging around, and I'd get up and try to play a blues song, and my friends in the audience, after I got off, would say, hey, man, what did you do to that song? Or <laughs> like they, they wouldn't even recognize the song I was trying to play. So I wasn't very good. That's what it came down to. and. At one point, I wrote my own song, and then, of course, nobody could criticize that I was doing it wrong. I think that's one of the greatest songwriter lessons ever, is that if you are trying to be a cover band, it is so hard to be precisely exactly like the original. It's impossible to be exactly like the original. And so if you write your own songs, they just have to sound like the way you want them to. Yeah. And I didn't have the musical skill to cover other people's songs. And another plus about not being very good musically was I didn't consider myself a musician. I was just doing my songs, whereas a lot of people got caught up in how well they were playing the guitar. You know, they'd worked on their guitar part. They'd worked on their vocals. I always knew that both my guitar and my vocals kind of sucked and I didn't care. You know, I was just a communicator. And so that helped me and I wrote a song and I played it for my dad. And he says, well, Jack, I like a song that has a part that repeats, a chorus that repeats. You know, in life, a lot of times people have to tell you things. You don't just pick up anything, you know. And I went, oh, yeah, a chorus kind of thing that repeats, you know. So I took that to heart. The second song I wrote was a song called Diamond Ring. I guess it's never been recorded. But at one point, Linda Ronstadt was considering recording it. And then a guy named Ted Stock in the folk scene asked if he could sing Diamond Ring. And he started singing it around town. And he was a fabulous guitar player. Sounded like three people playing at once, these intricate parts. And it was beautiful. And people kept coming up to me and saying, wow, what a great song. So at one point I asked Ted if he would show me how to play his arrangement, you know, on the guitar. He said, no. No love lost between competing songwriters, I guess, sometimes, right? Or I guess he wasn't writing. He was covering your song, and he wouldn't even show you his interpretation. Yeah, you know, it was like... <laughs> Thank you for teaching me the song, and I'm not going to teach you how I made it. My, yeah, my, you know, how my arrangement. That's how I kind of got into writing songs. And people started asking you to play your songs, right, back then? Yeah, which is not the way it happens now, I don't think. 
being a musician was not a real career choice back then. This is the 60s, the late 60s? Yeah, exactly. You know, unless you were in the like the Brill building in New York or in one of the Nashville publishing houses. That's right. I guess it was starting in Los Angeles up in the Laurel Canyon scene. Yeah. With the Buffalo Springfield and the... But this was before a lot of that, really, yeah. And so people would ask me, I'd play a song at the coffee house, and they'd want to do it. And so then they'd go start performing it. And only after a few years of that did I think, hey, maybe I can be a songwriter. And then I saw this folk duo perform, Hedge and Donna, and they were just absolutely incredible. And they were the first people to record my songs. They had a record deal in L.A., and then after that, I thought, well, maybe this could work. Did you see them perform one of your songs live? I did, yes. And what was that feeling like? It was completely magical. You know, it was fantastic. Do you ever get tired of that feeling of people performing your songs? I do not. Is it ever different? I mean, you've written so many classics. We're going to talk about Peaceful Easy Feeling, Already Gone, Smuggler's Blues, I Found Somebody, you know, all these great Eagles and Glenn Fry classics, uh, Slow Dancing, great songs that have been covered by many, many artists. Oh, pretty much. I mean, of course, the first time I ever heard Peaceful Easy Feeling coming out of a radio, that was an astounding thrill. But I still like it every time. And no, it's just always great and it doesn't get old. Have you ever been in a karaoke bar when they were singing one of your songs Actually, no, I don't, I don't no. think I have. I haven't been in karaoke bars very much, so that would explain. I was once in a karaoke bar and Mac Davis got up and sang, baby, baby, don't get hooked on me. And it was like, <laughs> That's so funny. It was magical. I was like, oh my God, this is like the special event. The guy singing the song that he wrote, that yeah, charted. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, that's so great. So we're going to have to take you to a karaoke bar, Jack, once we get past this pandemic, when I get you up here to Park City to come to our songwriter festival. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, I hope so. But we're a ways away from that. So you meet J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry, who are in this band, Long Branch Penny Whistle, and they're touring in San Diego. Well, they were playing the Candy Company, which is the big folk club in San Diego. I just went and happened to see them and thought they were great. So I asked if they'd like to stay at my house. At the time, I'd rented a big house with six bedrooms near Balboa Park, and I filled it with friends of mine. My brother and I had a candle shop in the garage where we made a lot of candles, sold them at the Del Mar Fair, sand candles. And so they stayed with me, and then every time they came to San Diego, they would stay with me. So that was Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther. And we remained friends forever. And so this is kind of like this magical moment, the three of you guys coming together early in your career. Are you in your teens still or in your 20s at this point? Early 20s, maybe. I'm not sure. So you're just hanging around playing songs for each other in your free time? Yeah, I graduated from San Diego State. And then for a while, I had a job running a big coffee house called The Back Door. They had built a student center, and they had put in a bowling alley, but they didn't have money to finish it. So we went in and turned it into a giant folk music club, what they called the Hoot Nights, at these coffee houses, which were open mic nights. So I ran the Hoot Nights at about three different clubs. You know, I got about $12 each time, you know. <laughs> and so that's what I was doing. And then JD and Glenn would come down. And they would play the open mic nights, the back door? Yeah, they did play the back door. 
So they were up in L.A., and they had this folk duo, just the two of them, and then they got a record deal, Amos Records, and they made an album. They brought it down, and we listened to it. And so that was kind of the beginning for them. So Glenn's living in Silver Lake in an apartment above Jackson Brown, and you start going up to Hollywood? Yeah, he asked me to come up, and I would stay with them, and then just like in the movie, you know, we would hear Jackson Brown in the place below. And I had met Jackson Brown because he came also to San Diego and played the candy company. And I had already heard his songs and was actually performing these days for Adam. And this was before he ever put a record out. These songs were just circulating in the folk scene. Up in LA, he had the apartment down below and we would hear him practicing piano all day and working on his songs. And then at some point, Jackson was introducing people to David Geffen. Geffen was putting together his record company. So I remember he took Glenn and JD over to meet Geffen. So that was a real interesting time to be up there. You know, you guys, you four are somewhat credited as being the founders of this thing, the architects, I read, of the Southern California sound. And I think it's a well-deserved name for this sound that you created. It took what had started in this Laurel Canyon thing in the late 60s, and it took it in a new and different direction. That's where your first hit, Peaceful Easy Feeling, came from and out of that scene. Well, let's see. Jackson was from California. Glenn was from Detroit. And J.D. was from Texas. But the Southern California sound, I mean, really... There was some rock and roll, but it was like a lot of folk mixed with country, you know? Yeah, kind of Graham Parsons, too. Yes, absolutely. And then stirring some rock and roll. You know, Graham Parsons brought a lot of country into it. Then he went and hung out with the Stones, and they mixed in a bunch of rock and roll, which actually came from the blues, the electrified blues, you know, from Chicago and stuff and the South. And then uh, it all smirched together like it actually had to, but came this wonderful sound out of it. So Glenn and Don Henley are the backing band for Linda Ronstadt. There's some archival footage of them playing at the Troubadour, this legendary place that's still around, and I hope it survives the whole pandemic situation of being shut. I hope all our clubs make it through to the other side of this. But certainly Doug Weston's the Troubadour, legendary place. You're part of the scene. Have you ever played the Troubadour? Yes, quite a few times. So I went up there and stood in line like everybody did to play on Monday night, which was the open mic night. And then they said, well, you don't have to stand in line anymore. You can just tell us when you want to play on Monday, which was a big deal. So I played a lot on the Hoot Nights. Eventually, Doug Weston offered me a recording contract. He is opening another troubadour in San Francisco and was going to have a record company. And I ended up not signing with him. And the reason you didn't sign that contract? I don't know. It was like, it was a long contract with a lot of stuff in it. And I don't know, just at that time, I don't remember why, but he was an amazing guy and a visionary, you know, and put together this incredible club. What was it like playing there? Oh, it's a wonderful place to play. The way it's set up, the sound system, the long stage. And then the bar was outside the front of the building. That was an amazing scene as well. You know, we used to go there virtually every night. And so who did you see there? I saw Graham Parsons. I saw Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt. I was there when Elton John played 
first time in America. And I saw Steve Martin and just a million other things every night, you know. So you're like a regular here. You become friends. Like these are your best friends, at least when you're not in San Diego. Oh, yeah. Well, Glenn and JD were great friends, and I developed a lot of other friends from that scene. So then at some point, Jackson and Glenn decided to introduce me to David Geffen. By that time, they weren't in Silver Lake anymore, and I went up and stayed with Jackson Brown in his house. And that's when I was playing Peaceful Easy Feeling, and Glenn came in and heard it and asked if he could put it on a cassette tape. So he recorded it on a cassette, and he came back the next day. They'd already toured with Linda Ronstadt, and he said, I've got a new band, Jack, and we've been together eight days, and we worked up your song. And he played a cassette for me of the Eagles doing Peaceful Easy Feeling. Against your skin so brown I want to sleep with you in the desert tonight A billion stars all around I've got a I know you won't let me down Cause I'm already standing on the ground That's the first time you're hearing the vocal harmonization of your song. Oh, yeah. He took me into a rehearsal. And the room, it was like a tiny, tiny room. I can't. And he says, yeah, yeah, tomorrow we're going to have all these record company guys come in and we're going to put them right there on that couch. You know, they were, they were going to be about eight feet from the band. You know, I'm watching the band and they play, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. And Don Henley is singing. So I, I had never met Don. And he's playing the drums and he's singing at the same time. 
and he's the most incredible singer I'd ever heard. And I'm going, who is this guy? You know? So that was me seeing the Eagles. And the next thing I knew, they had already gone to London and recorded their first album with Glenn Johns. Uh, I was still living in San Diego. Glenn brought the two-track tape down to San Diego. And I was the only one with a tape recorder. So we all gathered in my house to listen to it. The first song was Take It Easy. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, well, that's the best song I ever heard. That's the best record I've ever heard in my life. And then the next song was Witchy Woman. And I'm going, wow, that's the best song I ever heard too, you know? And then the third song was Peaceful Easy Feeling. And I just remember thinking, this is the best album I've ever heard, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then those songs ended up on the biggest selling album of all time. So The Eagles' greatest hits collection from 72 to 76, I think it was? Yeah. And you had two songs on that. So tell me about writing Peaceful Easy Feeling. Well, I had a gig out in El Centro at a mini mall, and I didn't even remember the name of the club, but recently some people showed up and they reminded me it was called The Aquarius I was trying to hook up with the waitress, and she said, okay, I'm, I have to leave, but I'm going to come back and pick you up, and you can come and stay with me. So I told the guys I was with I didn't need to go back to the place we were staying, and they left, and then uh, the girl never came back. So I'm stuck on the linoleum floor in this little place all night, you know, trying to sleep, and so that's when I started writing the song, you know. I still have the piece of paper. And a lot of times when you write a song, a lot of stuff that comes out at first is no good. And that's why people stop writing. But if you don't stop and you just keep going. And then I looked back later at stuff I'd written down and I saw this phrase, peaceful, easy feeling. And I went, hey, that's cool. Here's what I love about that phrase. Since you coined that, since you put those two words together in front of feeling, peaceful and easy. It has forever changed the way people think about that phrase. You know, people would say, I have a peaceful feeling. Maybe they'd say, I have an easy feeling. I'm not quite sure what that means. But that peaceful, easy feeling, everybody understands that differently because of that moment when you wrote that down. And it's almost, I, I don't know, it just, it's so moving to me that this is the art of Jack Tension, that you came up with these two words that peace is hard to find. We know this in the world, and yet it's something that we've been striving for forever as humans on the planet. You put those two words together of making peace easy. Think of how hard our life is all the time and how we're seeking peace. It's like finding peace is hard. And you know, you created this peaceful, easy feeling. And here's the funniest thing about this story, Jack Tampton. You were sleeping on a linoleum floor of a mini mall after you were stood up on a date. Like, how could you have a peaceful, easy feeling in that setting? Like, this is remarkable to me. Well, I had a friend uh, back there I'm still friends with named Teo. He was into Eastern philosophy. In our crowd, we had noted, like, you're always looking for love. And you're looking for things in life. But a lot of times when you stop looking, when you quit looking, that's when you find. 
what you're looking for because you're not searching so hard or you're not trying for love so hard and it opens you up to actually see it. Maybe it was there all the time. You know, so that was in the back of my mind about that song. The girl stood me up, but I was kind of going, oh, well, just, you know, let that experience go. It's okay. And then maybe something good will drop into your lap. That's remarkable. Like you're, you know, sitting there in the mini mall and you're coming to terms with being stood up. And so she wasn't the girl with the sparkling earrings. No, because when I got back to San Diego, I went down to the street fair in Old Town and I saw a beautiful girl. I mean, I was falling in love every 10 minutes, you know, and I saw this girl who I never spoke to, had these long, beautiful earrings. I put her in the song. And then the last verse of the song I wrote, waiting for my Polish dog at a place called Derwiner Schnitzel on Washington Boulevard, because I used to carry my Stella guitar with me at all times. And so that's where the last verse is written, and they have established a plaque. Yeah, they, they had a peaceful, easy feeling day, and they had a plaque in the table. And then the Derwiner Schnitzel Company, which is now still around, it's called Wiener Schnitzel, and they awarded me a solid gold wiener. Well, you got the golden wiener. I got the golden wiener. No other songwriter has one. Not quite up there with a the Grammy, but close, <laughs> I guess. So, and then I think to myself, you know, there's so many girls and they could have been walking by and they could be the girls that I put into that song. And then they would never know it was them. You know, this is amazing. There actually isn't like one single girl that gave you the peaceful easing feeling. It's like a whole montage of women. You actually were lying on linoleum instead of already standing on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> like they tell you to write songs from your personal experience. Like you kind of took it the exact opposite of what was happening to you and wrote this legendary song. Well, I was talking to my friend about creativity and basically he says, well, there's a million things coming into your mind and heart all the time, every day. You have a million thoughts. As humans, we try to organize them in some kind of pattern to figure out what the heck's going on. And then when you're some kind of an artist, you make a little world, like a song or a story or something. And that is your way of organizing all the stuff that's coming in into a little world that has some order in it because you put it together. And then you have to do that, you know, so I took all the input of everything that was happening in my life and uh, just, I don't know, you, you do it, you have to do it, whether anybody's going to hear it or not. And that's still what I do every day. It's a way of making sense out of life, I guess. One of the things I love of, about researching you, Jack, is you are so full of profound statements. They're like nonstop and they're in your songs. And there's, and sometimes they're simple things about life and the human experience. And you've written about so many phases of the human experience. And I want to encourage our listeners to listen to the Jack Tension songbook on our site, which I've put together. But in particular, Jack's albums in the last 20 years are full of a treasure trove of amazing songs about, you know, mainly the human experience. You seem to really find writing about humans in different ways that are clever and engaging and love your work, Jack. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's talk about the second hit that you wrote, Already Gone. Well, I heard some people talking just the other night And they said you're gonna put me on the shelf But I got some news for you And you'll soon find out it's true And you'll have to eat your lunch all by yourself Cause I'm already gone And I'm feeling strong I will say Stopping one while But I guess you felt you had to set things right But just remember this When you look up in the sky You can see the stars and never see the light I don't care Cause I'm already I was running the coffee house called The Back Door, and I had a gig there with my friend Rob Strandland. And I had always wanted to write a country song at that point because I listened to country radio when I was supposed to be sleeping when I was a kid on the Japanese transistor radio. And I liked country, but I didn't know how to write a country song. So Rob Strandland lived uh, out of town in El Cajon, which is actually only three miles away, but to me, and he had a horse and a dog and cowboy boots, and he was a country singer. So I thought, okay, he'll, you know, he'll help me write a country song. So we were getting ready to play, and we were in the back room, which was actually the kitchen where the performers warmed up with these giant refrigerators. And I opened the refrigerator, and there was a big white jug So I just took it out and we started drinking out of this jug, which turned out to have hard cider in it. And at that point, I had never been high in any way. I had never had a drink or... Really? Yeah. How old were you? I'm not sure. Okay. So you're a pretty young guy at this point. So I'm drinking this hard cider and we wrote already gone together in about 20 minutes, you know, and, you know, we were feeling really good and I got to feeling so good that in the last line of the chorus, I just left the ground. And instead of words, I just put in woo hoo hoo, you know, <laughs> it's like, woo hoo hoo. And did you sing it exactly that way the first time? Yes. That was it. That was the magical moment 
you didn't edit it. You just wrote it down and that line was permanent. Yeah, I mean, it was woo-hoo-hoo and I will sing this victory song, woo-hoo-hoo. And so Rob and I got up on stage. We said, well, let's do that song. You know, we didn't even know what to call it or anything. Apparently, Glenn Fry must have been there because I don't think I did the song much after that. There's one other recording when I played at In the Alley, which was the club in Escondido, and I opened for Jackson Brown. And I didn't really know Jackson very well at that time, but I just kind of stormed into his dressing room and said, hey, man, I, I just wrote this song and I want you to sing it with me. You know, <laughs> so being very nice, he came out and sang Already Gone with me. Oh, wow. And then like, you know, 30 years later, someone came up with a tape of us doing it together, you know? Wow. So this is like a, a breakup redemption song, which is unusual. One of the reasons I think this song resonates with the audience is, you know, we've all been through breakups or losses in life and getting beyond that can be hard. There's a lot of songs written about that, that feeling of getting dumped or breaking up. But this is the aftermath and the recovery and the redemption and the victory beyond that. Yeah. I had mentally found a way to deal with it. At some point, I finally said, look, if you trust somebody and then they betray you in some way, you're just not going to deal with them ever again. But that doesn't mean you're not going to trust the next person. In other words, I decided I'm just going to trust everybody until they prove to be untrustworthy, and then I'll move on. Good advice, again, from Jack. And that's what I was telling myself about a certain situation, and then that's really what the song was about. It's kind of a freeing, you know, you don't want to remain bitter toward everybody, but you just go, okay, you had your chance, you blew it, and you're not getting another chance, and I'm moving on, and I feel good. There's two couplets in this song that I love. Just remember this, my girl. When you look up in the sky, you can see the stars and still not see the light. That's right. That's the one. And then you repeat kind of the, the melody. So oftentimes it happens that we live our life in chains and we never even know we have the key. Yeah, that's, that was the one for me. That was the one. But there was no particular girl this was based on. or Not really. And a lot of times we do that. We make it a romantic situation when really it's just problems of life being solved and ways to manipulate your mental outlook to improve the world that you're in. And we say it through romantic situations, but yeah. So the Eagles release these two songs and suddenly you're on a roll and you form a band called the Funky Kings Yeah, with Jules Shear and Richard Steckel. Yes. One of the amazing experiences of my life, I went up to L.A. and I thought, okay, I'm, I guess I'll make my own record, you know? I really loved this band called Honk that I had met from Laguna. And they were just fantastic. All five musicians that were completely different genres and played amazingly together. And I always wanted to be part of that band in some way. So one of the guys was Richard Steckel incredible songwriter, singer, and guitar player. So I ran into him in LA and he had gone up there to start a solo career. And we were talking and he took me to see this other guy playing at the, I think it was the Ice House, Jules Shear, who was an amazing songwriter and solo performer. So we all got together and 
were sitting around. Doug Haywood was the bass player for Jackson Brown. I think we were at his house, and I think Jackson Brown was there. And so we passed around songs, and I had written Slow Dancing. Richard Steckel had written this incredible song called My Old Pals. Jules Shear had written a song called It's So Easy to Begin. And those two songs were just absolute masterpieces of songs. And these guys sang incredible harmonies. So it was just a thing where we were just sitting there, we felt the magic happen. And we all had to forego our plans to make our solo careers. And then we played one gig at a place called Quackingham's, where we opened for uh, Bobby Boris Pickett, the guy that did Monster Mash. <laughs> and a guy in the crowd said he wanted to manage us. He said, you shouldn't be playing in clubs. You should be making records and stuff. So after one gig... Arista Records signed you. That was an A&R guy from Arista Records in the audience? No. What happened was Glenn had taken me to meet Clive Davis at one point. Glenn Fry had taken me to meet Clive. and. I was rehearsing with the Funky Kings in a little rehearsal studio. We didn't have anything going. I got a phone call that night from Clive Davis. He said, I'm coming to town. Do you have anything going? I said, well, I've been with this band a couple days, and we're rehearsing tomorrow. But And he said, well, I'll come see you. Well, so <laughs> that day before, we had decided we needed a rhythm section instead of just the three of us. Richard Steckel had called his friends in Laguna and a drummer and a bass player and a keyboard guy. And they all came up and showed up at the rehearsal studio. We'd never even met them before. I said, look, guys, um, at 2 o'clock, Clive Davis is going to come to see us. So <laughs> we rehearsed three songs with this brand-new rhythm section. Clive comes in at 2 with uh, a couple guys with him from the label. We play the three songs, and Clive Davis says, I like it. I'm going, wow, that, that's great, Clive. To, should I get an attorney and have, you know, contact uh, your record label or what? You know, how to, uh, do you want to hear some demos or something? He goes, no, Jack, I like it. You've got a deal. That's it. Wow. And always respected him for that because he didn't need to ask anybody else in order to make up his mind. So we had a deal and he got Paul Rothschild to produce our record who had, produced uh, Janis Joplin and The Doors. So it was kind of a whirlwind experience, you know. So we we made the record, and then we went on tour opening for Hall & Oates. So it was incredible.
just flow together when the lights are low. Shadows dancing all across the wall. Music's playing so soft and slow. The rest of the world so far away. slow dancing sway into the music and it did okay but it really did well for johnny rivers yeah my version which was the only time i was on the radio singing went up to number 60 on the billboard chart and then i found out later johnny rivers heard it on the radio and he said man i would cut that song if it wasn't already a hit and someone said johnny it's not a hit so he cut it and he worked the record. He went all through the South to the radio stations. Plus, he made a great, great record of it, and he made it into a hit. Then after that, I met Johnny Rivers, and we became really good friends and did a lot of other work together. You know, most dance songs are about getting people up out of their seats, jumping up and down, rocking and rolling, and, and this is about slow dancing. This is like, by design, the opposite of that. But this song gets people dancing. Well, I was in a club. My friend was playing, and he had a band called Joe Bummer and the Ass Bites from Hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're playing. And, a marketable name there. <laughs> yeah, and he's one of the funniest guys that I ever saw. So they're playing song after song, and the audience is just sitting at the tables in the club and they're not getting up and dancing. Finally, they played a slow song, and I noticed that everyone got up and danced. And I thought, well, the people, they're waiting for a chance where they can hold the other person close. So they're waiting for a slow dance. And then I thought, gee, there should be a song called Slow Dancing. <laughs> so that was the genesis of the idea. And also, at the time, I was falling in love. The girl who later became my wife, and I'm still married to and so that's where the emotion came from. And I started the song. I just worked on it nonstop for about three or four days and, until I finally felt I had it. And tell me if I'm getting too personal, Jack, but did you play slow dancing at your wedding? Uh, no, not, no, I no. did not at my wedding. <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> no. <laughs> do, do you remember who the band was at your wedding? Oh, I didn't have a band. We had a... a, a in the backyard of my parents' house. You know, I shied away from the big wedding. But I have to say, it worked. <laughs> you know, we it stuck us together just like a big wedding. That's a great story. And, you know, I saw in one of the um, YouTube videos that are out there on you that your parents were married for 72 years. Is that right? That is an amazing story, an amazing love story. And... um really a role model for us all in some ways. And I don't know what the formula is, Jack. Such a blessing for, for me and my brother and sister to have that role model that like, Oh, well this is, the, it seems normal. It seemed normal to us, but just, it's not normal, but that it's possible, you know, 
I think on their 50th wedding anniversary, <laughs> there was a party and they asked my mom, well, what's, what's the secret? How'd you stay together? And she, go, she goes, well, first of all, we didn't kill each other. <laughs> that's a good start, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. You know. <laughs> oh, man. It is, uh, you know, love is work. And uh, I think you write about that a lot in your songs. And in fact, we go from your solo period in the 70s the Eagles have their, you know, rock stardom, superstardom globally. And then they break up famously and somehow you reconnect with your dear old friend, Glenn Fry. How does that happen? Well, we'd been, of course, really good friends during the time of the Eagles, but I hardly saw Glenn. He was really busy. So he called me and said, the Eagles are not together. Do you want to come over and write some songs? So I had known him for about 10 years, I guess, but we had never written a song together, even though he'd recorded two of my songs. He had a house in the hills. He was renting a place that used to belong to James Cagney. One big room with an A-frame and a big fireplace. And I went in there and he had two bottles of wine, each costing more than my car. And he had a hundred candles burning in the place. And I said, Glenn, I don't drink wine. He goes, well, this is songwriter wine. You have to have a little of it. And I said, so what's with the candles? Do you have a date later? And he points up, he goes, no, Jack, it's the muse. She is up there. And we are not the only two guys trying to write a song tonight. And I want her to come down and hang around with us. So he was seducing, courting the muse, the songwriter muse. Yeah. Then we thought about that, and we thought, well, the muse, she comes down, What? and we thought, well, what if a girl was here with us and had to choose, like, say, between two really, really cool guys, like me and Glenn, you know? <laughs> but she had, you know, so then we started writing the song, The One You Love. So we wrote that song that night.
And so the, the thing is, though, Glenn was my great friend. Then when we started writing songs together, it just turns out that your great friend is one of the best songwriters this country has ever had. And I just got to write songs with him basically for 14 years until the Eagles got back together. And even after that, it was just remarkably lucky. And we just had a fantastic time writing together during all that. It was just kind of the greatest of experiences. Let me list the songs for our listeners. I found some buddy party town, smugglers blues, the all nighter, sexy girl, true love, soul searching, live and write part of me, part of you. I've got mine river of dreams. You belong to the city. I'm probably missing some here. And I've been listening to these over the weekend. It's a real sort of metamorphosis of your sound a lot more saxophone, real blue-eyed soul, if that's accurate. I think Glenn is quoted as calling it his Wilson Pickett phase. But a lot of these songs are about girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys had a writing technique that was a Spanish phrase. Yeah, we, we would turn on the cassette recorder. And then we would take our two little Martin guitars that I had and sit there and start strumming. And then we would just make stuff up and just make it up and make it up. And then we would listen back to the tape. And sometimes there'd just be a song that we had made up. You don't even remember while you're doing it because you're just in the middle of it. And we called that El Blurto. <laughs> El Blurto. So we would just blurt out a bunch of songs. And then we would go back and write them down on the yellow pad. And then the next day having some coffee and looking at the yellow pad, then we would do a lot of work and edit the songs and, and put them together. But El Blurto was our technique. Just blurt it out. Yeah, just blurt out anything. But then Glenn, he'd say, well, I want to do an album, and he'd have an idea what he wanted it to be. He was from Detroit. Well, he originally started in Bob Seger's band, right, as a backing guitarist. He and Bob Seger hung out for years and learned but Glenn was a student of every type of American music, you know, and he could play it all. He knew it all and how it worked, you know, folk music, soul music, country music. He said, yeah, I like the saxophone thing and the soul thing. And so he'd think of an album. He'd have a good idea of the album and he'd even have titles, you know. He said, let's think of some titles. He knew what he was doing and putting together. And I would go along and, and help him as much as I could to realize the visions. Was it you collaborating both on lyrics and melodies or, you know, everything? Everything. Like he might say, well, true love. You know, he was just sitting at a Fender Rhodes or something and, you know, out of the blue, out of the night. And then he'd make up a verse and then maybe I would just sing a bridge, you know. And so it was really always a collaboration with music and words, just feeling good and getting stuff down. Let me tell you about loving my baby. Out of the blue, 
I love true love. It's a, one of my favorites from this era. In particular, I like the line, true love, it's got a lifetime guarantee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and true love makes every burden just a little lighter. Yeah. Again, these are like Jack phrases. Makes you be a better man. That was a Glenn phrase, you know. And then the other thing is when he went to make a record, I had a device called the Lin 9000. It was a drum machine, the first drum machine that had a sequencer in it. And I had a little box with two bass guitar sounds in it. Glenn would tap in the drum part. He would then, on a keyboard, play in the little bass part. You know, we'd sequence it. Then he'd play a keyboard part, and that would end up being the record. We'd take all those tracks in the studio and use them because he could just hear the whole record in his head before he even made it. And then he would sing the sax part to the sax player. Those sax players, was there more than one or was there one primary sax player in that era? I think there was more than one, but I'm I'm a little fuzzy on who played what. It is such a signature sound of the songs that you wrote with Glenn in the 80s. One song, which is, I think, your highest sort of across-the-board charting song from this era is You Belong to the City, which went to number one on the rock chart and number two on the billboard and the adult contemporary charts.
starting all over again. The moon calls up, the music calls. You get me tired of staring at the same four walls. You're out of your room and down on the street, moving through the crowd in the midnight heat. The traffic roars, the sirens scream. You look at the faces, it's just like a dream. Nobody knows where you're going. Nobody cares where you've been. Cause you belong to the city. You belong to the night. Living in a river of darkness beneath the neon. me about writing this song well glenn had met michael mann on a plane and michael mann was creating a television show called miami vice which glenn later acted in one of the episodes he played the smuggler who flew the plane that we had the song smugglers blues but they also sent us an episode where one of the two guys the detectives goes back to New York City, where he's from, and he's walking the streets of New York City. So we wrote a song for that. And I remember Glenn was just strumming an E minor chord. And all of a sudden, he, he goes, you belong to the city. And I just went, yeah, that's it. That's it. You know, I mean, what a phrase, you know, you belong to the city. And it's just the guy's kind of going back and he doesn't fit in, but he does fit in. And so we wrote that song directly for for that show. Tell me about that that's it feeling. I think, you know, you and Glenn had that magic of, you know, sometimes it comes right away like that, but sometimes you have to work at it to get to the that's it feeling. And when do you know it is? In part, this gets to a typical question is, how do you know when a song is finished? You know, that's it. <laughs> it can't get any better than that. <laughs> but that feeling like, oh, this is it. We don't need to change it. Well, usually we'd start something and get the feeling right away like, wow, this is a good idea. I mean, even something like Party Town, there was a lot of things we were just laughing. You know, it was just a, kind of a joke, but well, this is going to feel good. And there's there's room in rock and roll for a song that just feels good, you know. Yeah, Party Town is not a Pulitzer Prize nominated song. No. You know, it's, it's just, not designed to be, but it's, it's a, a fun, fun song. It's, a, it's just a fun <laughs> song about having fun, but there's some disc jockey in Atlanta who played it for 20 years every Friday at five o'clock, you know, so people could get ready for the weekend, you know, so it, it found its place. But we think of songs that get really excited about, about the idea and just know that it was something we wanted to say and we could just feel the thrill of, of things coming together. And then a lot of times we, we, we'd use a yellow pad and we get to a certain point in the song, it seemed like it was done. But then we draw a circle around every line that could be better, you know? And sometimes, like the song, The One You Love, there was a line we didn't have, you know, for weeks. And 
Glenn went to New York and he was, he called me, said, Jack, this afternoon I'm recording the vocal. So we have to get that line. And I already had 27 pages of, <laughs> of attempts. Of alternative lines. <laughs> to get that line. I just kept trying to get it, you know. And then so finally I got it and I said, well, this is it. You know, I sent it back to him. So the hardest part of a song is when you've got almost all of it done, but there's a line in the middle or something that you don't have. And that line has to connect with everything that went before and lead into everything that's going after. So we would just keep working on the song until we said, well, that's, we can't get it any better. But that's interesting. So a big part of finding that's it is about identifying what's not it and working until not it becomes it. Yeah. And when you sing the song, you feel it going by and you just, in other words, there has to be something inside you that goes, this is working and this other thing is not working. You know, it's almost like you're living the emotion of the song when you do it. And when the song is done, the whole thing just flows correctly. The emotion flows and you know you've got it. And that's kind of the essential thing to being a songwriter, really, is knowing when you, when you have it and it's working. That's an emotional feeling of that's it. It's not an intellectual feeling, or is it some of both? It's well, it can be intellectual in, in terms of when you're making the line, you say, I wanted to say this and that. But singing is more of a, you know, it's an activity and it's an emotional performance because it has music. So sometimes you'll write a line and say, yeah, I got it. This is great. But then you'll sing it and you go, no, it just doesn't feel right. You know, it's like if I'm talking to the girl and trying to convince her and I get to this line, it's not working, <laughs> you know, even though I thought it was going to work when I was looking at it intellectually. But no, so I got to have to change it and make it all work. It ain't no fantasy It ain't no lie Walking down the road Together you and I Sitting here thinking A tear in my eye Cause I never had the chance To say goodbye We always believed each and every way That tomorrow'd be another day When we're old we'd sit together Looking back to say That we had it all and it was fine So glad you were a friend of mine But now it's hard to try Cause I never had the chance to say goodbye everything you think you know you're gonna have to let it go when snowflakes come and winter starts to fall I guess the end is always near 
And if I'd seen that really clear I might have done things differently That's all So, you know, Glenn passed away and we miss him. And you wrote a song about that more recently called Never Had a Chance to Say Goodbye. So for a couple of years, right up until the pandemic, I mean, I wasn't seeing Glenn very much anyway because he was back in the Eagles and they were touring the world and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. But we talked and he'd come over when he was home and, and write a song with me once in a while. And after he died, though, I, I went um, I went over to the beach and sat on the cliff and would I'd make up songs every day and kind of video them. So when I got home, I'd, I'd work on them. I did that for a couple of years. I didn't know what else to do with myself. Just being there on the cliff looking at the beach somehow was important to me. Everyone has a different thing they do. But to me, I just like to be sitting there looking at the ocean playing my guitar. I don't know why, but it had a certain magic. So one day I just wrote that about missing Glenn called Never Never Had a Chance to Say Goodbye. And uh, most of the song just came out, you know. You know, I've talked on this show about grief resolution. I, in particular, um, talked to Rain Phoenix, whose brother River passed away, and she wrote her album River about it. And um, talked to even Stevens about his songs that moved me that way. It's something that everybody goes through in life. It's a phase of life. And the fact that you took it on in a song really means a lot to us. Everybody has to process it in their own personal way, but it's a universal experience. Yeah. Actually, I wrote quite a few songs about, about my feelings about that, but most of them I, I never put down or anything. But, you you know, never recorded them? Yeah. Most of them? Yeah. Does it help you feel better? Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing about music. It's one of the few things when... When emotionally you get into a loop, you know, and you keep thinking about something that's bugging you and you can't get out of it or whatever, you go sit down and start playing some music and it can, it can just take you somewhere else and change, change your feelings for, and, uh, people that don't have something that can do that, I think it's very difficult. So it's a wonderful thing to just sit down and play and be able to have your emotions go over to somewhere else. You know, a lot of us lose someone and never have a chance to say goodbye to them. And, and I guess nice to write a song as a way of saying goodbye to Glenn, who really died unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah. What else went into this song? Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, well, then that's it. Yeah. Nothing more needs to be said. Out of all the songs you've written, is there a contemporary voice that you would love to record one of your songs? And what song would that be? And what voice would you like to record it? Boy, that, that's such a difficult question because a lot of the people that I, that I love and admire the most that make records, 
they write their own songs a lot. Like, I mean, I love Van Morrison. I love Mark Knopfler records. Uh, so I love Eric Clapton records. He doesn't write all his songs, but I, I really can't focus in on a particular song that I'd like somebody to do. Understood. And not everybody has the answer to that impromptu question. And it can be more than one song and more than one voice. <laughs> I started asking that question around the Nashville writers, and I know you've written in Nashville for certain people like Emmylou Harris, who covered White Shoes. Early on, I got to meet Emmy Lou Harris because I was the opening act on a tour. And boy, that was incredible because I'm just in awe of her music. And before they made their own records, it had Ricky Skaggs, Rodney Crowell, who were both in her band. Two Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah, just incredible. So many years later, I went to visit my friend in Amsterdam, a songwriter, Robin Lent. And he took me down to Paris, and we saw a concert. And I noticed in Amsterdam and Paris, the guys were wearing white shoes, which no guy in America except for, like, tennis shoes, nobody had white shoes. And I thought, wow, those white shoes are kind of cool. And <laughs> so we got back to Amsterdam, and I, I wrote the song. We went next door to Robin Lent's friend, a producer, Hans Hollistel, and recorded a demo. We didn't have a drummer. And, and at that time, there were no drum machines. Drum machines hadn't been invented yet. So to play drums, I said, well, he said, you want drums? I go, okay, but how are we going to do that? You know, in your apartment here, there's no drums. He says, well, we'll have Willie DeLoop. Willie DeLoop. So he opens a drawer and he has a bunch of little loops of quarter-inch tape where he's recorded a drummer on a tape and then spliced it into a loop. 
and you put the loop on the tape recorder and it just goes around and around and plays over and over. The original drum machine. <laughs> yeah. And so he had done that. And so he picks, he looks through it, he picks out one of the loops and puts it on and he uses that. And then my friend Robin played bass and Hans is an incredible guitar player. He played guitar and I recorded a demo of White Shoes. Later, it was recorded by Randy Meisner and the producer called me up and said, Jack, I got Russ Kunkel in here. I got all kinds of drummers that have come in here and they can't seem to, they can't seem to lock into that groove the way your demo did. So who played the drums on your demo? You know, I say, well, Willie let's get Willie DeLoop in here. I had to tell him, you know, (laughs) so then he made a loop and he used that. So then um, years later, I guess Emmy Lou had a copy of the song and, and she recorded it, and she called her album White Shoes. So that was just absolutely fantastic. I got you under my skin a long time ago, just a little tattoo. And let the world know that there'd never be no one for me but you. But it turned out to You had another country song by Sammy Kershaw, which is called Your Tattoo, which you wrote with another Hall of Famer, Costas. I was actually at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which was the last Oh, live I didn't one. know he was in the Hall of Fame. That's in the incredible. Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame yeah. induction ceremony. Uh, not the big Hall of Fame that you're oh, okay. in. Okay, <laughs> right, right. Um, but maybe we got to get you in the Nashville one now that you're in the big well, one. Well, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm satisfied, though, you know. Uh yeah, so I I had met Costas, and he had written about, he's actually a, a quirky mountain man from Montana or something, but he had gone to Nashville and had written a whole bunch of hits. He was coming to California, so I think we met at a hotel in the Valley in L.A., and I just saw him that one time. I went out to the hotel room, we were sitting there, and we wrote three songs, which is kind of amazing. I was just thinking about, you know, tattoos. Everybody was getting tattoos and like so the song is about a guy that has a tattoo of his girlfriend and then she dumps him and then he gets a new girlfriend 
who hates his tattoo, you know? And, you know, one of the things about this song is it's really funny. And you have a lot of songs with funny joke lines and a handful of even, I, they're almost like children's songs with like hokey, like play on word stuff. I mean, I would love it if you would write a kid's album, frankly, you know, or maybe take some of your work that we don't know about that. But this, you know, sort of Ray Stevens started this thing of novelty songs or was part of this writing of novelty songs. And you have a handful of this. I wouldn't call your tattoo a novelty song, but it's a funny song. Yeah. Like she, you know, the girlfriend, she pounds on my arm till it's black and blue, you know, trying to pounding on his tattoo. And he wants to get a mustache to cover it up. Yeah. (laughs) It won't wash off or fade away. I'm stuck with you till my dying day. Just a picture of a girl in her birthday suit with her cowboy hat and her cowboy boots. And I have always had a lot of funny songs because playing live, it kind of breaks things up and feels good. I toured as an opening act for Chicago. They just thought I was a comedian, you know? <laughs> so I'm going, well, no, I'm actually a songwriter too. I'm not just, a, you know. One day I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame, maybe. <laughs> I had a song called uh, Shut Up and Get Me a Beer. I had, and then I had a song called 15 Days Under the Hood. that song by uh, new riders of the purple sage and paladin have recorded it as well as you right yes and that was about fixing your car and i've always had a lot of funny songs and i i just love doing that what do you think of the new riders version of that it's a really extended play you know the way they do it oh, i love it and i love the paladins too the paladins version because the paladins they were in that era, you know, they kind of had the 50s hairstyle. They, they're three-piece with a stand-up bass and a great guitar. But in reality, they all had 50s cars, and they worked on them and kept them. So it was real for them. You know what I mean? They, they, they liked the song because it was their life experience. It was their huh? life experience. And then eventually I stopped doing the song because it has a lot of funny stuff about, you know, the carburetor and... I just skinned my knuckles on the timing chain. 
And I was playing the song and I realized that times have changed. Nobody works on their cars anymore. And nobody knew what I was talking about. They didn't know what a distributor or a timing chain was, you know, so. <laughs> the computer does that now. And now with the Tesla, there is no carburetor anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I love your your humorous songs. I think we should put out a, a whole record of them. And I don't know, maybe if that's a kid's record or just assemble them. Well, that's a good idea. I'll write that down. Okay, every once in a while. My wife says I have a lot of ideas, but not all of them are good. But Well, that's, <laughs> of course, that's your, your wife's job is to tell you that they're not good, you know. <laughs> Funny song album, yeah. And I, I realized this, Jack, when I was listening to your podcast called Three Jacks, ah. which I really enjoyed. And I highly recommend all my listeners go download Three Jacks onto your and subscribe to Jack Tension's podcast three jacks where you did the one episode where you had your nieces talking you know participating in the song and and uh it was a children's song and yeah. and the one about tv and food yes yes I, oh that was that was a big hit of mine i always used to play that and uh eat some food watch tv you know the story of america and that was and it's really like true. all we do is eat food and watch TV, you know, and it was kind of... And then the other song you're referring to where I had the nieces and nephews sing is called Whoopie Cushion. Whoopie Cushion, that's it. I, uh, I You're the first guy who's written a song about the Whoopie Cushion. Yeah. I think that's, and people, that's a great... People may not know now, but in every comic book, there was a page advertising novelty toys, and one of the toys would be the Whoopie Cushion. And you get this whoopee cushion, which I bought, you know, and you stick it under the cushion of a chair. And then when your parents or your aunt or whatever sits on it, it makes a fart sound, you know. And, so, and there uh, was the hand buzzer and the um, yes, the x-ray eyeglasses. Yeah, the x-ray eyeglass. <laughs> that's <laughs> you know, right. Which I never understood how those worked. For, <laughs> you can see you know, for a dollar without 99. their clothes just by looking through this x-ray <laughs> eyeglass thing. And uh <laughs> But the whoopee cushion that that was fun. Nope. The whoopee cushion was legendary, and that's a good song. On on, and so tell me about Three Jacks, your podcast. What's the what's the theme there? Well, it's three songs by Jack, so it's three Jacks. It's only about ten minutes long each episode, but I'm enjoying it because first of all, I have hundreds of songs that no one's ever heard, and I recorded them, but not. I didn't record them well enough to make them on an album. They're just like demos, but they're never going to see the light of day. And yet the songs are good. And I'm approaching it. Like if I play live, I always introduce the songs and I say funny things and I say a bunch of different things, whatever thoughts I've been having about things. And I think that really enhances the song a lot, you know, to have an introduction with some thoughts about it. So that's what I'm doing in the podcast. So I introduce each song and talk about life and talk about the song. And then I, I play the tape of the song and I do three songs. Maybe it's kind of more meaningful than doing an album. Albums are kind of over now. I mean, maybe they're mm -hmm. not, but they are, you know, it's the algorithm determining what we're going to listen to. It's like LPs are over. CDs are over downloading stuff is over. You know what I mean? It's a lot of things pass into history and you don't even know it. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, if I make a whole album, who's even going to listen to it? So 
I just think these are good little experiences and they're not too long. And uh, so I'm hoping people will enjoy these. I enjoy doing them. In the morning when I wake up She brings me a kiss in a coffee cup Overflowing with love It's never too much It's never too much After a long winter The mockingbird's back in his tree and he's singing a song of love Just like you and me It's a beautiful song Never grows old Like the morning sun Burning away The cold And I say, hey This is one of the good old days I say, hey out our episode i don't know if these are closing songs for you but i kind of think of them as wrap up i have in mind two songs one of the good old days or always magic when the sun goes down yeah you know both seem to me like sort of the songs you could close a show with you know yeah i was swimming in my pool and just kind of looking around i'm in southern california and i just thought this is a nice day. In years to come, I'm going to look back and say, this was one of the good old days. So that song is kind of about, yeah, I had a great day today, and, and this was one of the good old days. You know, let's appreciate it right now instead of just looking back on it. And the other song, which I really like, both of these songs are on my latest album that I did two years ago in Nashville called One More Time with Feeling.
One More Time with Feeling is a song I wrote with Glenn Fry that no one had ever heard. But when I was sitting on the cliff for two years writing songs, I just had this idea there's always magic when the sun goes down and people gather. They don't know why. They're just looking for a big piece of sky. And they stand around with other people, just like since the beginning of time, you watch the sun go down. And it's kind of the essential mystery of life is time. It's time. And when you see the sun go down, you're seeing the motion of time and feeling the essential mystery of life. So I just wanted to capture that thought, and I was happy to be able to get that in a song. There's always magic when the sun goes down. One More Time with Feeling is an amazing record. Uh, Gary Nicholson produced it, is that right? Gary Nicholson produced it. Yes. And so he's a legendary producer. He assembled an amazing band for you on this album. I was blown away at the session players on it. Um, from your video of it. So tell me about this. Like this is a this is an album that everybody should give a listen to on Spotify. If you are interested in still listening to albums, this is worth the listen. <laughs> well, I had made a lot of albums, but I'd never had a, a real producer, you know, since the Funky Kings. And Gary Nicholson, besides being two-time Grammy winning producer, He's a legend himself. He's had 600 songs recorded as a songwriter. He's phenomenal. He's got a new song on Willie Nelson's album, a new song on Chris Stapleton's new album. He's had songs by Every Blues Guy, by Fleetwood Mac. But, you know, he writes four songs on Ringo's last album. So for him to take time out from his writing and listen to all my songs was amazing. Uh, so he put together the band. We were going to do it in his studio in his basement in Nashville, but it got flooded at the last minute. So he calls me the day of, and we went into Blackbird Studios, the best studio in Nashville. And he had assembled this team with Dan Dugmore on pedal steel, who played with Linda Ronstadt too, and John Jorgensen on guitar, who played with uh, Chris Hillman's Desert Rose Band and all kinds of and Elton John and all kinds of, you know, these guys, I've been doing this all my life. And these guys were so good at making records. I just couldn't even believe it. So I'm in the booth singing. We went in and we didn't even play any song more than three times at the most, you know, sometimes they just played it once and they had a chart, but they'd never even heard the song before. And then when I'd say something in the lyric, I could hear them musically responding. Uh, it was just, these guys have been making records as players for 50 years, some of them. It was just a peak experience. And watching the video, it was almost like watching the modern day Wrecking Crew, if you're familiar yeah, with absolutely. those guys. And when you listen to the record, it is just really compelling. You wrote great songs. And then one thing you said at the beginning of this episode that I have to staunchly disagree with you on Jack, is your vocals and your playing are superb. Oh, thank and you. And I love them. And I love listening to you. I love your work. 
I am so grateful that you came on our show at Backstory Song. I can't thank you enough. Is there anything you'd like to talk about to wrap up our show? Well, I just appreciate the level of effort that you put in to get familiar with everything I've done to do this podcast. It's really extraordinary, and I've had a great time. So thank you, Doug. No, thank you, Jack. And thank you to our listeners. Please share the song list. Please share our social media. We're out there on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I think we started Pinterest this week. Oh, thanks a lot, Doug. It's been great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.